Welcome to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded podcast of the Marine Corps War College, covering the intersection of strategy, security, and warfare. Welcome to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded podcast of the Marine Corps War College. Today, we're discussing relationship repair. My guests today are Dr. Lauren McKenzie, Professor of Military Cross-Cultural Competence at the Center for Advanced Operational Cultural Learning, also known as CAOCL, here at Marine Corps University. She currently chairs the MCU Faculty Council and serves as an adjunct professor of military emergency medicine at the Uniformed Services University of Health Sciences. This academic year, she's taught courses devoted to cultural metacognition, intercultural communication, and culture, conflict, and creativity across the PME spectrum. Dr. McKenzie's most recent publications are devoted to best practices in military culture education, with recent entries in the International Encyclopedia of Intercultural Communication and Handbook of Communication Training. Ms. Kristen Post is a researcher for the Translational Research Group at Kayakal. She's published two articles regarding the West Africa Ebola outbreak and one on culture shock in the military. She developed her experience working with the Marines when she deployed to Helmand Province, Afghanistan, where she conducted outside-the-wire research with Human Terrain Team Prior to that, she was awarded a globally competitive Rotary World Peace Fellowship and graduated with a master's degree in international relations and conflict resolution from the University of Queensland, Australia. She's also received a master's in education and a Bachelor of Arts in English from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Dr. McKenzie, Ms. Post, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. Big fan. Well, good. We appreciate that. (laughs) Before we start our discussion on relationship repair, can you tell us a little bit about your background working with the military in this area related to culture? Absolutely. Um, So this is my 10th year teaching intercultural communication classes for military students. I began teaching an online course via the Community College of the Air Force about 10 years ago, and since then have taught across all learning levels, from the sergeant school through the war college, across branches of service. This past year, I worked with a team of researchers at Kayakal, led by Dr. Carrie Fosher, to put together a book designed for curriculum developers devoted to best practices for teaching culture to military students. Uh, this book is free and accessible at the Kayakal website, which I can provide later for those interested. Great. So it's out now. It's published. Yes, ma'am. Oh, that's fantastic. Great. And Ms. Post? Well, you've given some of the context, which was that I was in Helmand, Afghanistan, with the Marines as a human terrain uh, cultural liaison, I like to say, sort of thing. So going outside the wire and getting to know the mullahs and the maliks and um, helping the Marines better understand the the culture picture there. And then uh, that was 2009-10. And then after that, I came to work for Kayakal, so we're almost going on nine years at Kayakal. And I've done a lot of interviews um, with Marines generally in the infantry, also with um, advisors who have gone through the McSig advising program training um, to better better understand where our culture training can be improved. Um, so I have a fair number of interview experience and even on the field training experience with role players, that kind of thing, where I've sort of observed uh, Marines doing their thing and then sort of uh, taking that back to Kayakal and helping us uh, improve our programs. Oh, great. So, Dr. McKenzie, you and Ms. Post have written an article on relationship repair. Just to get us started, what is relationship repair? So, relationship repair strategies are those actions we take to recover from a mistake or to restore a damaged connection, whether it be in a personal or a professional relationship. 
Of course, this is something we all have experience with. So uh, whether it be missing a deadline at work or missing a birthday or an anniversary, and although it sounds simple enough to just say, okay, I'm sorry, or I apologize, it turns out that delivering an effective apology is a bit more of a complex interactive task. I'm sure we can all think of times when our own or others' apologies were ineffective or even worse, counterproductive. So uh, our research for this article was really an attempt to find out what the academic literature says about effective and ineffective repair strategies, and then to see if that aligns with Marines' experiences on the ground. So this has nothing to do with the Marine Corps, but I'm laughing internally because my toddler um, does not appreciate apologies. Is that, that right? <laughs> I can tell her I'm sorry about something until the cows come home, um, but it never makes it better. So I'm, I'm excited to read this article, gain a little bit more of leverage into maybe how I can become a better parent to someone who um, certainly understands when I've done her wrong, but but is not yet so gracious as to, to let me off the hook. <laughs> well, let me add um, that although apologies are the most commonly mentioned in the academic literature, relationship repair strategies also can take the form of just offering an explanation for the violation or whatever you did wrong, or showing concern or empathy, or even offering some kind of a compensation. Oh, she's big on the compensation. Yes, <laughs> Elmo videos being the number one at the moment. Yeah, so we chose to study relationship repair instead of apologies alone because apologies, at least in the English language, can be used for just about anything. You do not have to have a relationship with someone in order to apologize and for it to make sense. So you can say, you know, oh, I'm sorry I missed our anniversary, sweetheart, or I'm sorry I bumped into you on the subway stranger, right? Sorry is sorry is sorry. Um, you don't need to know someone in order um, to apologize. So we thought it would be more useful to focus on relationship repair for this paper because it would give readers some uh, strategies, right, for mending relationships that matter to them, again, whether it be personal or professional. Um, the last thing I'll say here about, about relationship repair strategies is that uh, the research suggests that repair is more likely if what you say, again, after a violation, like let's say I'm 20 minutes late to the recording of this podcast. Research says that, Dr. Johnson, you're more likely to forgive me and there's less likely of a, a negative effect on our relationship if A, what I say is very specific, and B, if I can acknowledge the negative consequences of my actions. So, you know, I have the option here of showing up 20 minutes late, looking at you and just saying, sorry. Or I could, if I wanted to align my response to what the academic literature suggests, I could say, oh my gosh, I was stuck on the train, the train was late. I'm 20 minutes. I, I truly apologize. I know that now this impacts the rest of your day because this recording is starting late. You'll be late to your next meeting. It will have a domino effect. And, and again, I'm really sorry about that. So as you just heard, I didn't just apologize. I said I'm sorry, but I tried to use more of the spectrum of relationship repair strategies and offering an explanation for why. Um, acknowledging the negative consequences of my actions on you Right, and then again, just trying to be as specific as I as I could. Um, so then, that's just to say that um, I've learned a lot from 
doing this literature review, I think it's been really informative, both personally and professionally, but I should also say that our research here is less about, you know, predicting human behavior. We cannot predict whether or not your relationships will recover from what you say, but we'd like to think that we can offer our readers in this article, you know, maybe some more considerations for managing difficult interactions, and we know that's just a fact of life. Great, thanks. So, Ms. Post, why is this something Marines should care about? This isn't um, work that we would traditionally associate with fighting and winning the nation's wars. Well, I would argue wherever we've fought uh, the nation's wars, people have been there. So we've probably, in some ways, been building relationships or working with people. And a lot of times it has been in a joint environment. Certainly in World War II, you could see that, and obviously up until now. Um, but with the addition of sort of an asymmetric warfare um, environment, I think, and you have partnering um, with police, with ANA, and again, I observed that in Afghanistan. Um, you've got a lot of um, potential for relationship building, um, but as any Marine knows, you're any no plan survives first contact. So if you've, if you've come in ready to build relationships, most likely at some point, especially when you're in that truly embedded environment where you're cohabitating together, the likelihood of relationship repair or the need for relationship repair is also going to increase. So I think in today's very decentralized, almost um, we don't even know what the mission's going to be till they start to deploy, um, having relationship repair skills um, along with relationship building skills is really going to, is, is really important. Um, these Marines already get that they need to have the relationship building part, um, and they already understand why relationships are important to what they're doing mission-wise. It definitely, they'll, they'll always say, I can do my mission regardless of whether, whether I have a relationship or not, but it makes it easier and it saves time, and of course Marines are efficient, so these things are good. Um, and likewise, if you've built a good relationship, then the repair part is a lot easier. Um, but, in, but in general, again, um, rather than going with that hopeful uh, idea that we're always going to maintain a good relationship, it's good to go in with some of these tools. Great. And so how does culture feed into this? I can understand um, in an American context or in a professional context, you understand the rules of the road for violating a, a social norm or a best practice and, and making amends for that. Do cultural differences make it easier because I know you're culturally different from me and so I anticipate misunderstanding or does it add a layer of friction? What, what is the role for culture in relationship repair? Okay, so to answer your question, yes and yes. So um, we know that the academic literature suggests that this idea of expectation violation is one of the main reasons why relationship repair is needed in the first place. But often we aren't even aware of the expectations we have. So take nonverbal communication as an example. Um, there's a line of research in both psychology and communication that talks about display rules for emotions. So I'm thinking back to a study I read a few years ago that asked a bunch of Nordic participants, I believe it was Swedes, Finns, and Norwegians, what their reaction would be if they were walking down the street and a person they didn't know was walking towards them and smiling at them. And the top three responses to that questions by the Nordic participants were, A, the person must be drunk, B, the person must be insane, or three, the person must be American. 
So this uh, A and B. Yes. So this reminds us that, and I'll I'll just speak for myself here. I guess I always, before I read that study, I thought that if I'm walking down the road and I'm smiling at a stranger, that that smile will be interpreted as friendly and polite, not as drunk or insane, right? So this idea that you know um, we are often unaware of the different kinds of interpretations people have uh, of our nonverbal behavior, but that these are culturally informed, and that you know one of the general ideas behind culture education is to help give us a better sense of the logic people use to interpret behavior. And so emotional display is just one of the things. But of course, if you are, you know, from a culture where smiling is appropriate, regardless of the circumstance, right, then you might apologize after getting into um, a car accident, but with a big smile on your face. And a person from a different cultural background could interpret that smile as, again, completely inappropriate or insensitive and not what you intended at all. And so what we're after with culture education is helping the intention of our message, right, if I'm smiling, to come across as friendly and polite, to align with the interpretation of our message, that that smile is to be interpreted as friendly and polite. But we know that's not always the case, and there's all kinds of factors that can get in the way of the intention of our message aligning with the interpretation of our message. And so just to get back to your question, you know, what does what culture have to do with any of this? A few months ago, I taught a class on metacognition here at the War College. And, you know, we know that metacognition is just sort of thinking about our thinking and being more aware of our thought processes. The students for, for part of the class looked at, or I should say listened to, a podcast from the NPR series Rough Translation. And it was a podcast titled The Apology Broker. And it was uh, mainly about a woman who had to translate apology cultures. So she had to try to get um, an American POW to accept the apology of Japanese war crimes. And so it goes into a lot more detail, of course, but one of the main ideas here was, one, that Americans and Japanese have very different languages for apology. As I mentioned earlier, our English language is not all that conducive to apologizing. You can say sorry for just about anything. It doesn't matter to who or what the severity of the offense is. Whereas in Japanese, it's said that there's over a dozen language, a dozen words for sorry, and that there's both a verbal and a nonverbal, of course we know with bowing element, to apologizing. And so one of the, the takeaways, I thought, from, from that podcast, and again, there were many, was that for many Americans, we tend to see apologizing as establishing who's at fault. Whereas for many Japanese, they use the apology as a tool for reestablishing social harmony. So have very different languages of apology, but also cultures for interpreting that language. And oftentimes we think about um, culture as giving us the code words for understanding language. And I thought that was a really interesting podcast for getting at the thought processes we use to interpret an apology. Um, so our article, going back to our article, recommends that during an apology, if there is a mismatch between your expectations and reality, 
We want our readers to consider uh, some various factors that could be contributing to their frustration. So we outline a couple things in our in our article. First, um, your frustration could be due uh, to different a difference in the kinds of apology components that should be included in an apology for it to be seen as genuine. So components include things like expressing regret, requesting forgiveness, accepting responsibility, offering compensation, etc. And then the last thing I'll say here is that um, there are a whole bunch of variables, right, that are going to impact the likelihood of our apology or our repair strategy as being accepted. And so one of them is that whether or not the offense or the violation is perceived as an integrity violation or a competence violation, right? Was it someone's intention? You know, do they have lack of integrity or was it just they didn't know better? So just as a quick example, let's say you hired an accountant to do your taxes. They made a big mistake. You got audited. Well, the chances that you know, you're going to forgive the accountant and, and move forward with your relationship are increased if you perceived that mistake as being competence-based. So say it's a young accountant right out of school. They didn't know better. They didn't know the, the tax law as well as they should have. Chances are, you know, you'll be a little bit more forgiving. Whereas if it's a very seasoned accountant. I would account- not be forgiving. <laughs> Whereas if it's an, a seasoned accountant, right, the idea is they should have known better. You know, they might have done this deliberately. Uh, But again, this all goes back to perception, your perception of a competence or an integrity violation. And just like most things in life, perception is everything. Okay, great. So I can give an example um, from a Marine story, and it's really, I think, impressive. And it's also interesting because it's not about his apology to the foreign force. It's, It's kind of the opposite. But the actual violation was... He got shot at by the foreign forces. Um, so you can imagine his life was in danger. His interpreter's life was in danger. But the lead up was is that he knew he was going to be patrolling at night um, and that the foreign forces were going to be um, a little bit more nervous, a little bit, you know, not sure what's going on. And he had tried really hard to set, up, set this up so that they knew that the Marines were going to be coming through at a certain time. Um, Ultimately, what happened was the captain and some of the officers in the foreign force were informed and verbally he communicated with them. But the people on the watch, who were, of course, lower enlisted, um, were not informed. And so ultimately, they shot at the Marine. And so the Marine is understandably angry and is now talking to the captain that he had already communicated with in the foreign force. And the captain is not apologizing. He is saving face. He is doing a lot of things that are appropriate for him and his culture. Um, And the Marine knows it's not an integrity violation in the sense of this was the captain doing what he does, which is to hoard information and not push information down to the lowest levels. He doesn't typically interact with them, and this isn't. And this was his oversight in the sense of not pushing information down. But the Marine already knew how they operated. He already knew how the officers enlisted have a really big gap. So it helped him understand that this was not. I mean, this was somewhat. This was a competence violation, um, and he also understood why he wasn't getting an apology right away. They agreed to have lunch the next day, which I think was really smart. The, the staff sergeant suggested this. And again, a lot of times when you have a meal, that really helps build or repair a relationship if you're doing something communal. Um, even then, the captain and some other of the officers never said they were directly sorry. 
Um, he just had to interpret by the body language that the captain did, in fact, feel embarrassed about this whole incident. But what they came with instead was a list of other grievances that they had. So it really took, I think, this marina. He walked away actually thinking the, the lunch was somewhat of a success. So I think that really demonstrates what, a, what an expert he was in cross-cultural understanding. Um, he was able to walk away and see everything that they were doing and not read it through his own lens of what he expected in terms of apology and discussion. Um, and ultimately, they changed what they needed to change so that they didn't get shot at anymore. You know, that was the Marines having to make their adjustments and not rely on the foreign forces to change their, suddenly change their way of communicating with one another. So let's help set our listeners up for success. What are some of the factors in addition to that I don't know if that's empathy, but that certainly that depth of understanding, the ability to perspective shift. What are some of the what are some of the factors that would set Marines up for success with relationship repair in a cross-cultural context? Mm -hmm. Well, again, if you're thinking about it in terms of you're giving, a, you know, you're repairing the Marines repairing the relationship thinking about the things that, that Lauren's talked about in terms of there are some environmental factors, and I'll get back to those, but, you know, and what, how, how well you've built that relationship, kind of assessing that and sort of understanding what, how much you need to repair that relationship, like how important is that? I think Marines are really good at figuring that out. Um, with regard to the actual apology, there's, there's questions of how sincere you are and how do you convey that sincerity, how much time has passed, which, again, that's very cultural. Some people want to forget about it or not talk about it. Some people don't, depending on that context. Um, and so you kind of have to integrate a lot of different thoughts at the same time. Um, but just getting back to the environmental factor, one of the things that um, we can all agree on is that typically these deployed environments are stressful environments. And a stressful environment will likely hinder um, good relationship building and relationship repair. Um, and it will make it harder for you to take the other person's perspective of what's going on. Um, and so the thing to, to that can help facilitate the process even in that stressful environment is that relationship building in advance. It's taking that time. And again, Marines understand this. Generally, it's in the context of chai drinking or um, just hanging out and not <clears throat> being super super focused on your training for a little bit, smoke breaks, um, you know, sharing food. All of these things are typically ways that, that Marines are, again, intuitively figuring out how to help how to build relationships and that will generally help you in this repair stage as well. Are there any um, traps or any any danger zones that Marines ought to be aware of? Things they absolutely should not do if what they want is to repair a relationship? Well that's a good question. Again, it's uh, there's no fast and hard rule and it always it is it's it's somewhat intuitive and somewhat um, we can give you, you know, the tips that we've been giving you, but you, you kind of do have to put it into the context of who you're with and what's going on. I think Marines, if anything, if it's that maybe that thinking, okay, can I just give them the benefit of the doubt and think it's not about their integrity but about their competence. So if they're showing up late, for instance, regularly with the tra in the training environment, for instance, it helped Marines, for instance, to know that the in one case, these military were coming from their farms really far out, and there's no public, there's, they don't own their own cars, so they're actually using public transportation. Um, so they're, they're showing up late because they're getting there as soon as they can. Um, so I think the danger is to kind of put on your marine um, thinking and say, oh, they live on base, or they're, you know, they should be here because they, sh they have a bus that is organized for them, and they should show up at the same time. 
you know, to kind of take that lens off and think, I don't know what these people do on a regular basis. I don't know how they get here. I don't know what they've got going on at home. I don't know how much reading and writing and expertise they have before they get here. So when they do things that look to me like incompetence, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt and um, suspend that judgment and kind of go from what can I do now to help things, you know, move forward. The article highlights the importance of self-construal. What is self-construal and how does it relate to maintaining or repairing relationships? Sure. Um, Self-construal has been examined by researchers since the early 90s and is essentially how people define themselves or how people see themselves in relation to others. So, for example, if I tend to prioritize an independent self-construal, I'm likely to answer the question, who am I, <laughs> with responses pertaining to my individual achievements. Uh, so I might say I'm a professor or I'm a swimmer. Whereas if I were to prioritize a relational self-construal, I'm likely to answer the question, who am I, with responses pertaining to my primary relationships. So I might answer that question by saying, I'm a wife and I'm a mother. Previous research suggests that we react more favorably towards messages that reinforce our own self-conceptualizations. So, for example, a study by Ryan Fair and Michelle Gelfand uh, called um, When Apologies Work found that apologies were more effective with people who identify as having a relational self-construal if the apology demonstrated an understanding of the victim's perspective or a degree of empathy. Whereas apologies were more effective with people who identify as having an independent self-construal if the apology makes an attempt to restore equity or offer compensation. Our research, however, also reinforces the point that self-construal is not black and white and varies according to the context. So our recommendation at the end of our article is twofold. First, we think that anyone who's in a position of having to recover from a misstep or repair a relationship would be well served by understanding how the other person in that interaction defines themselves, the most important elements of their self-concept. Second, we advocate for the power of contextualized thinking. It won't come as a big surprise to many listeners that when it comes to things like assigning blame, Americans tend to overemphasize the role of the individual and underemphasize the role of context. So we are really advocating for this more contextualized thinking, especially when it comes to things like assigning blame. And I get, we, we give a, an example in the article with a gunnery sergeant who explodes at his, uh, an, another enlisted person in a foreign environment where they're supposed to be using a classroom and that person resists. And then the, the, the gunnery sergeant also has his own idea, identity and he realizes that he himself is stressed and that he kind of let him, his temper get out of control. But I think it gives, in the article we kind of show how he, they think about this this self-control question because the gunnery sergeant goes into, I don't know, even though he's enlisted, he could actually have quite a lot of WASTA. In some of these militaries, you have somebody who's in the military who's the son of a governor, and even though he himself doesn't seem like he's a high-ranking guy, he has connections. So he's understanding this relational um, context. And he himself lost it in some ways probably because he thought of this guy as uh, less you know, competent, less maybe le less lower ranking guy, but 
he then realized that that's probably, he needs to think about it differently. And so he went to his captain and his captain made the initial response, the initial apology. Um, and, and again, helped give some context into the gunnery sergeant's stress levels and what's going on and how much pressure he's under. Um, and then also the gunnery sergeant came later and gave an individual um, apology. Um, so I think both from the perspective of what they were thinking this other gentleman might be thinking and how he might be reacting, they did a pretty good job of figuring out that the self-control of that man is, you know, beyond just he got yelled at once by this, you know, in this one environment. Um, but they also kind of uh, took a multi-pronged approach, which I think, again, Marines are doing pretty intuitively, and we want to sort of encourage that, that, you know, you can do the individual apology. You can also do a, an apology from somebody who has maybe a little bit more um, status. Um, and then you can also think about other things that you can do, like having a, a meal together or something else to kind of bridge that. So putting all those together, you're more likely to succeed um, than any one of those strategies on, on their own. So we have this article and it's under review where? Actually, the article is going to be published in the spring 2019 issue of the MCU Journal. That's the Marine Corps University Journal. Okay, great. If our listeners wanted additional resources on the practice or the operational significance of relationship repair, where do you suggest they turn? I'll, I'll just start off by offering um, an article that's one of my favorites. It's called Repairing Relationship Conflict by Hong Ren and Barbara Gray. And it's in the Academ Acad excuse me, Academy of Management Review Journal. For those who prefer to listen, I'll just restate something I mentioned earlier. There's a great podcast from the series Rough Translation called The Apology Broker, uh, again, which details the process of translating apology cultures, and I highly recommend that one as well. And I quoted earlier um, some aspects of um, the factors that contribute to relationship repair, and that was from Kimberly McCarthy's article and it's um, an integrated model of relationship repair that is in the Journal of Organizational Culture, Communication, and Conflict. Um, but once you see the article, you can read our, <laughs> our references and <laughs> get them that way yeah. as well. And I'll just you know, also conclude by saying that we're continuing to look for aspects drawn from the academic literature that can be useful to service members as they look to increase their communication resourcefulness, because uh, this is a quality we think that's inherent to effective leadership. And we are in Kayako building it into some of our online education um, curriculum as well. Yeah, and yeah. you used it in your class as well. Correct? Yes, so yeah. I use it in my teaching um, research, and you know we have a our website lists uh, all of our publications. We have some new videos that we've just produced. They can all be found at our website, which is usmcu.edu backslash kaocl c a o c l. Great. And so, last question. What are you guys reading right now that our listeners should know about? Well, my 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 direct uh, director is uh, an anthropologist, but she's she has this biological anthropology background, so she's gotten us all listening to or reading the Tangled Tree, which is a history of our the species, our existence as as, a, as anything close to humans through the story of bacteria. Um, so it is a little bit far from what I ever usually read, but coming from a social science, it's kind of nice to be reminded of the hard sciences, if you will, look at, um, you know, developing theories and, and putting those out and moving along in the scientific realm. So plus it's just good to know, you know, we're all bacteria at one point. <laughs> kind of humbles you. <laughs> Excellent. Yep. Um, the book I'm reading right now is called Elastic. It's by Leonard 
Mladenau. It's about the value of flexible thinking and the ability to generate and integrate a wide variety of ideas. We know that Marine Corps leadership has placed renewed emphasis um, on critical and creative thinking here at the university. And this book details some of the science behind those thought processes. Fantastic. I love it when, um, when guests give us answers that are not textbook military history or grand strategy. These are two fantastic uh, opportunities to, to broaden our thinking as military or national security professionals. I think that's great. So Dr. McKenzie, Ms. Post, thank you so much for coming on the show. To learn more about the good work of the Marine Corps War College, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at at McWarCollege. Special thanks to our intrepid producer who is currently soaking up the rays in California, Lieutenant Colonel Jason Palma. I'm your host, Becky Johnson. Thank you for listening to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded, innovative podcast of the Marine Corps War College. This concludes the EGA podcast. Thank you for joining us. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the United States Marine Corps or the Department of Defense. You can follow the Marine Corps War College on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at at McWarCollege. And as always, our podcast music is Stuck in Traffic by Romero. Have a great day.